Today's guest is Rabbi Stephen Leader. He is the senior rabbi at Wilshire Boulevard Temple in Los Angeles. A disclaimer right up front. My family is an active member of Wilshire Boulevard Temple, and I have, since I met him nearly 20 years ago, considered Steve our rabbi. I can generally say that perhaps, aside from my wife and children, no one has taught me more than Steve. And it was in that spirit of teaching and learning that I invited him to join me on this episode of Tell Me What to Say. We touch on Steve's formative experiences toward becoming a rabbi and also discover his rare perspective on the stumbling blocks we all face in building healthy relationships through conversations. And now my conversation with Rabbi Stephen Leader. Good morning and um, thank you for taking some time to talk to me today. Uh, I've known Rabbi Leader uh, for going on, I figure, 20 years uh, and have come to the realization, as I've told other people, that he has what I think to be the most demanding and unique job as a leader of all the clients I deal with. Now, why is that? In brief, that's because knowing him a bit and knowing uh, some of the other clergy here at Wilshire Boulevard Temple, where we sit, um, that their day is chock full of a whole variety of activities from sitting and having a conversation to having to go to a hospital, then to a cemetery, then to a home. And it is a, uh, a ongoing adventure of taking care of people more than almost any other client I know. And I am always in admiration for that. And that brings us to our conversation. Um, uh, when the other guests have sat uh, for this uh, time, the first thing, a bit of a tradition I've started, is talking to them about what they wanted to be as kids when they grew up. Do you have any recollection before you wanted to be a rabbi um, of what you wanted to do? <laughs> I do. Yeah? <laughs> so He's laughing already, so we're off vivid, to a great start. Right. A very vivid memory of this. Um, <clears throat> I had <clears throat> two fantasies as a child about what I wanted to be when I grew up. The first was, I think, fairly common, which is, of course, you know, I wanted to play professional baseball. Uh, never mind I lacked the talent or physicality required, but, you know. <laughs> Still wanted to. Yeah, with, we don't let those things get in the way. So uh, clearly, you know, I wanted to. I grew up during the great era of the Minnesota Twins in Minnesota. But the other thing that's so vivid that still makes me smile to this day um, is that I grew up on a, on a creek called the Minnehaha Creek, literally ran through my backyard. It wasn't very large, but that was my playground as a kid. Uh, I'm one of five kids. Parents had five kids before they were 30. Uh, Dad worked pretty much all the time. Mom could kind of barely hold it together uh, with five kids and no help, and a totally, I have to say, unsupportive husband in that regard. So we were kind of left on our own. And for me and for the other kids in this beautiful, crazy little enclave called St. Louis Park, 
where Al Franken and the Coen brothers and Tom Friedman and so many others have come from. Uh, we, the creek was our playground. Creek was my life. I was skating on it in the winter and canoeing on it and fishing in it, catching frogs and turtles in the summer. So my fantasy was uh, I wanted to be a professional fisherman or fishing guide mm. because every time I, I would catch a decent stringer full of fish out of the creek, I, I just felt like the king of the world. Mm. And I would ride my bike home with my fish and, you know, my, my mom would cook them for me. And I, I, to me, that was just heaven on earth. And to this day, I'm rarely happier than when I'm standing knee deep in a trout stream somewhere. Mm. So, you know, <clears throat> I think at some level, we're all trying to get back to where we were when we were happiest as children. Mm -hmm. I know the guys who ride bikes as adults, you ask them when they were happy and free as a child, and they'll say it was riding their bike. So for me, I was happy and free as a child on the Minnehaha mm. Creek. Mm. Mm. And then at some point, I've heard versions of the story in sermons you've given, or at least in conversations. At some point, you were uh, you were called. You were uh, yeah. your decision became clear. Yes. So walk us through a bit the story when the rabbinate uh, was your choice. I think there were two pivotal moments. The first was my bar mitzvah. Why? Well, I, I didn't have to learn much to have a bar mitzvah, Temple Israel, Minneapolis. But every kid was given the opportunity to write some kind of a speech. Um, now, uh, we weren't given a lot of direction. I think it was in a cursory way supposed to be about the section of the Torah, the Bible, that we chanted from. But in my case, uh, I, I loved to write, always did. I've always had an ability with words. So for my bar mitzvah speech, I created an anthology of my poetry. Mm. And I stood up there at 13 years old and inflicted my poetry on my family and <laughs> friends. And I loved every minute of it. I loved being up there communicating with words. Mm. And I still do. Mm -hmm. It's a very gratifying experience. The creation of the piece, the writing of it is, you know, torturous sometimes. But the delivering of it and the moving of others with words is still a very powerful experience for me mm -hmm. and a satisfying one. Mm -hmm. um, so that was the first. The, then I you know, kind of went into junior high school. And I was always pretty good in school, but I was bored. And again, I was the fourth of five kids, so not a lot of attention paid to me at home. And I kind of started going down the wrong path. I was playing drums in a rock and roll band mm -hmm. uh, with a bunch of guys, by the way, who remain professional musicians to this day. And I was 14, and I got arrested for shoplifting Bob Dylan albums at Target. Mm -hmm. Now, in retrospect, a fairly honorable crime, mm -hmm. <laughs> being the Dylan fan that yes, I am. Yes, that's right. Right? But uh, my parents, that got their attention that maybe Steve was heading down the wrong path. They went to our rabbi, who said to them, you know, the thing you need to do is change Steve's peer group. You should send him to this Jewish camp in Wisconsin, in Oconomowoc, Wisconsin. And they did. And from the moment I stepped off the bus at that camp, hmm. I was in love. I was in love with everything about it. The music, the counselors, uh, the, it was the first time in my life I ever saw a rabbi in shorts and a t-shirt who could throw a baseball, you know, because my rabbis were so Germanic and proper and old and scary. 
And here were these normal guys who were rabbis. Mm. Um, I loved, I loved the, uh, you know, we slept in these big, like, kibbutz-like army tents and grew our own food in the garden and we wrote our own services and every, it was cool to be Jewish. I got a lot of attention for doing the right thing instead of the wrong thing. Mm. Um, and to be honest, I don't think I ever looked back from that day forward. I flirted with going into politics for a while. I worked on a big congressional campaign and when I was in college with a bunch of guys who went on to run the Clinton White House. And, you know, I flirted with it. But I always came back to Jews and Judaism. Hmm. And it, it really, that was just a pivotal summer in my life. I was 15. I, it was the right time for, for a kid to be influenced. And thank goodness I was influenced by that environment. Yeah. So... So you've been at it a few years? 30. Uh, 30. Remember when you just said a few minutes ago about, you know, guys like riding their bikes now because of what it was like when they were yeah. kids. Yeah. Do you love being a rabbi for the same reasons now than you, uh, for when you loved it then? Or what's Maybe changed? 15% of the time. Fifteen. Yeah, to be honest. It's not a lot. It's not a lot. Right. But I'm not sure it's unusual in any profession that you have to do 75, 80, 85 percent of the things you don't like in order to be able to do 20 or 15 percent of the things you do like. You know, there's an 80-20 rule mm -hmm. in life, and it applies to the rabbinate as well, or at least as ambitious a rabbinate as I have constructed here. Mm -hmm. um, so as much as being a rabbi for me was about the prayer and the poetry and the writing and the teaching and the, the human connections, I nevertheless spend a tremendous amount of my time in meetings and reviewing memos and dealing with marketing and HR problems and finance issues and, you know, uh, facilities issues. So, <clears throat> you know, and running a big, you know, $30 million a year, 450 employee, you know, medium-sized business with three campuses and all of the kind of, frankly, bizarre expectations that people bring to you when you're a walking symbol of some kind. Mm -hmm. So um, there's still enough in it that I love to keep me going. By the way, the books and the writing are a mm -hmm. big part of that. Yeah. I feel that in their own way, they're more eternal and transcendent and therefore important than the day-to-day -day operation of an institution or even, frankly, the brick-and-mortar projects, substantial brick-and-mortar projects that we've been able to accomplish mm. in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. So the answer is, honestly, sometimes I right. feel that, you right. know. Um, also, you know, we all age and our interests change and evolve. One of the great things about the rabbinate for me is that I've been able to have several different jobs within the same institution. Mm. And I've been able to focus on different aspects of things at different stages in my life when I am more or less interested in certain things. I was the youth rabbi here when I started. I was in charge of bringing in people in their 20s and 30s and keeping the teenagers involved. And I was good at it and I loved it. At a certain point, I got too old to do that. And then I started focusing more on programming for, for adults and cultural things and, and the writing and the preaching and the teaching. Uh, and then when I realized that there was a tremendous need to rebuild one of our campuses, 
a guy, myself, who had no interest in fundraising or money for most of his career after 20 years realized I need to become an expert in fundraising. And I went at it hard, Mm -hmm. really hard. And we were successful enough to accomplish our goal. So in a way, that's kind of a blessing that it's a career, first of all, where age is an asset and not a liability, which is very unusual. As you get older, you, in a sense, become more people's preconceived notion of what a rabbi is rather than less, which is, you know, pretty unusual in any other business that I can think of. Yep. Uh, So, you know, I'm very lucky in that way. Um, And I'm a person who likes to do a lot of different things. I get bored pretty easily. So Mm. the fact that the rabbinate for me involves shifting gears all day long for me is a positive, although there are rare occasions on which you just, your head's going to, you feel like your head's going to explode. You know, you go from a funeral to a wedding, to a board meeting, uh, to, you know, somebody whose marriage or business has just fallen apart. Um, you know, it can, it can definitely boggle your mind at times, but it also keeps things pretty interesting. Well, speaking of interesting, you have, um, when, when this podcast comes out, right around the release of your third book, correct? Um, I, I did have a chance to to, to read through it, uh, and it strikes me, to say the least, as your most uh, personal uh, book uh, and prolific in how much insight people get to you and what you're like and what you've been through and how that helps others compared to the other. Other yeah. two books that that I've read as well. So why the book? Um, that's what I've got written on my notes to ask you, because this is you had a prerogative, you had some time um, that you referred to that you went off to Italy to to work on this. Um, why this one uh, now? I think it's hard for any artist to really understand from whence the art comes. You know, Wordsworth said, I think it was Wordsworth who said about uh, literary critics, they murder to dissect. They murder to dissect. That the minute you start to analyze a piece of art, you kill it. You, You know, you have, in order to dissect something, it's definitionally dead. So the short answer is, I don't know. I do know this, however. When I experienced intense, intense physical pain, sustained for months, for the first time in my life, at an age where I was waking up to my mortality and vulnerability anyway, uh, it caused me to question how I had lived the first half of my life versus how I wanted to live the second half of my life. It cleared away a lot of underbrush in my life, including people. It unleashed a degree of bitterness that was within me that I didn't even recognize. And of course, unleashing that is the first step to actually understanding and making peace with it. Because the sacrifices to live the kind of life I've lived um, 
which is mostly a one-way street, a life of giving to others, can create, you know, extraordinary exhaustion and demands. Hmm. Um, and it's untoward to talk about because I'm supposed to be in an entirely selfless calling. And the journey of trying to understand my own feelings revealed to me how superficially I had been reading and, res reading and responding to the feelings of those who had come to me for help over the first 27 years of my career. Look, I, I, I don't think I was useless to people. I'm not an idiot. Um, I know some things about the human condition because I've studied a tradition my whole life that is about the human condition. So I'm not saying that my approach was without worth or value. What I am saying is that it was superficial based on what I myself had now learned about pain and uh, reconciliation. Hmm. And so I, I've, and, and that encouraged me to, to put, put together a book that was more honest and deeper. I still pull some punches in the book. I mean, there's a lot of things about what it means to have been me that I do not discuss in the book. Mm. But I agree with you that I open up more than I ever have before. Blake said, within a drop, you can see the ocean. So the whole premise of the book is that through that opening and through the opening up of other people's lives in pain, people will see their own. That this is not really a book about me or a book about the painful situations I have helped others endure and learn from. That ultimately the reader will feel this is actually a book about me. And they'll be able to find themselves within the book. And they will be able to find the book within themselves. That's my hope. That's really my hope. And, and so far, I have to say, I, I've only trusted maybe a dozen or so people to read it. And they are not people who need to sugarcoat anything for me. And they've been very deeply moved by it. Because although I admit I pull a few punches, I also really told the truth. Mm -hmm. And and also revealed the truth of others. Obviously, I changed a lot of names and circumstances to avoid embarrassing anyone. I have the permission of every person in that book to tell these stories. And finally, you know, I, I, end, I end the book with an observation, which is that every, they say every preacher has one sermon that he gives a hundred different ways. And I realized after my own experience with pain, that almost every sermon I've ever given is about finding something meaningful within and despite our pain. And that while, while never worth the price of pain, of our pain, neither is pain worthless. You know, I, I say in the introduction to the book, everyone goes through hell. The point is not to come out empty-handed. You know, the point is to use your suffering. Dostoevsky said his greatest fear was that his life would not be worthy of his suffering. 
So the book is an attempt to encourage people to live lives that are worthy of their suffering. You didn't have a choice about the price you had to pay for your human suffering, the degree of your suffering, the nature of your suffering. But you do have choices about how that suffering or whether or not that suffering informs your life going forward and makes your life, as the title says, more beautiful than before. You know, sometimes we're more whole when we're missing a piece because we have greater depth and greater sensitivity. And none of it's worth it, Drew. None right. of it's worth it. I remember my, my friend Paul Miller was an amazing, amazing guy. Um, he he uh, was the, the driving force behind the Americans for Disabilities Act uh, in the Clinton administration. Fa- amazing guy. He had cancer three times. And the third time, when it was obvious he wasn't going to beat it, he looked up at me from his hospital bed and he said, this much character I don't need. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I'm not for a moment glorifying suffering or pretending that the ways in which it informs the rest of our lives is even worth it. But we don't get to choose that part, whether or not we suffer. And I can tell you just from my own perspective, I am a healthier, better, kinder, gentler person as a result of my own suffering. And although I didn't wish for it at the time, I'm actually grateful for what I went through. Was it the book or the... How how did you ultimately reap the benefit of the suffering? Um, Because obviously by the book, I'm hunching there are lots of people who don't. There are lots of people who, who, who don't step back and... Um, and gain perspective, which is what the book's about, somehow learning and, and benefiting. Well, why, why did you get it and other people what allowed you to, to well, get it? Well, I think I'm still trying to get it. I think it's a process. I think pain... Look, success doesn't really change anyone. All success does is encourage people to stay the same. You know, this is working pretty well. Yeah. <laughs> The only thing that really, really causes, and I would say sometimes forces people to change, is pain, real pain. And everyone has a different threshold for pain. I, for example, could tolerate an extraordinary amount of physical and emotional pain, a lot. That has to do with my childhood and what I endured as a kid and all kinds of things. So there are a few things to answer your question. One is some people don't get it because they have an incredibly high threshold for pain and they Mm. never hit bottom. Like it never gets bad enough to force them to change. Some people are so narcissistic that they don't even recognize the pain as a result of their own failure of any in any way, which some pain is. So you know, not all. We don't want to blame the victim here. Sometimes people are victimized, often. Why did I get it? I think because it was such a shock to me. I think because I have a remarkable wife. 
and Kit and a few friends who really got it right. I think it's because I got great help, you know, from a great psychiatrist. And I think it's because I've always tried to embrace truth. And this was a new realm of truth that I felt compelled to, to embrace and understand and, and make my own. And then, you know, you started by asking me what I wanted to be when I grew up. There was one other memory that I did not share with you. I know when it was, I was in fourth grade. And there was a clearly emotionally troubled young girl in the class with us. I'll make up a name. Her name was uh, Julie, okay? It wasn't, but let's make up a name. And, and she acted out in class, and she was, you know, clearly troubled. And I remember in fourth grade wanting to go to the teacher and saying to the teacher, you know, would you just let me sit down and talk with her for a while? I think I can help her. Hmm. I had that instinct as in fourth grade. Miss Hollingsworth was the teacher's name. Now, I never did it, but I fantasized about it, right? So why the book? Why did I get it? Deep in my DNA somewhere is a helping gene, a listening gene, a rescuing gene. And I felt with my newfound insights about pain that I could be better at helping people. Mm. And then the book really is an attempt to do that outside the boundaries of my own community of Wilshire Boulevard Temple, which is a community of roughly 10,000 people, but there are 300 and some million people in the world, and they're all in pain in, in the country, and they're all in pain. So there is really no other way other than a book or maybe TV, I don't know, to fulfill that mission in my DNA to use the wisdom of our tradition and other traditions to, to help people yeah. make something of their pain. That's why the book. Hmm. So one of the chapters, um, and I've, I've heard you talk about it, uh, and then read uh, the chapter on essentially on words. Yeah, the power uh, of words. The power of words. Uh, the chapter is called Abracadabra, uh, and uh, very thought-provoking, to say the least, especially given what I do. The show itself that you're on uh, is designed to help people understand how conversations are turning, come in turning points of our lives. Mm -hmm. uh, and people like you and some of our other guests are obviously sharing the power of that. So let's take on how you help people, this notion of what's in your DNA. Um, and I'm curious what you see from your seat as people come to you for help. Um, wh what do you see them do that gets in the way where they really do, as you know, get in their own way? 
when it comes to communicating. Right? Help the listener on that one. I've learned over 30 years as a rabbi, and frankly, you know, 57 years as a, as a man, that the most important things in life are said with very few words. It's a boy. I do. Yes. No. It's a deal. So the first mistake I think people make is they, you, they, they say too much. They, they're not able to distill down to the essence of what the other needs to hear, wants to hear, or what even they themselves need or want to say. You know, the, the Torah, which of course is my roadmap into the human condition, was a book written to be heard. Hmm. We call it an oral tradition, even though it's written down. People didn't have photocopy machines, right? So things had to be terse, clear. They're, the Torah is made of very short, stubby sentences. Very few multisyllabic words. And I think there's a lot to learn from that. So the first thing is I think people just use too many words. And it enables them to avoid getting to the point, whatever the point is. The second thing I would say is that people, no matter how many or few words they use, they, they are formulating their response rather than listening to what's being said. I have a habit slash intention that when people come to speak with me, I deliberately listen with my hand across my lips. I do that partly because it's natural to me, but I also do it so I keep my mouth shut and listen. I also, I don't know, you would know better than I, but I think it's also a visible signal to the other person the rabbi is listening to me. He's not talking, he's listening. And people want to be listened to and heard. So that's a part of it. Because otherwise you're kind of a little attorney in your own mind, preparing you know, to respond or rebut. And that's not really a conversation. That's a court case. You have no idea how many married couples in my office over the years I've allowed to kind of spin out of control in front of me and then stop them and say, look at you, you're two little attorneys. Hmm. You want to spend your life in court? Hmm. So that's the next thing. And then it's, again, back to the first thing of saying the most important things with the fewest words. It's having the courage to say those most important things. There is no more difficult sentence possible, I think, for most human beings than three simple words. I was wrong. <laughs> I was wrong. By the way, it's much more powerful than I'm sorry, because it's a much higher degree of responsibility and culpability. I was wrong changes everything, takes the sting out. 
so hard to say for most people. Yeah. But it can change everything. You know? Hmm. Uh, there's a piece in the book called Hurt and Run. And in it, I juxtapose two family stories within my congregation. Both had loved ones killed as pedestrians by drivers. And in one case, it was a hit and run. And in the other, the woman stopped and did everything she could to make it right, short of obviously resurrecting this poor man. And then after the criminal and civil cases were concluded, she was allowed to speak to the victim's family. And the victim's family called me and said, this woman reached out to speak to us. I, I, do I have to speak to her? Do we have to see her? And I said, you do. Again, a short sentence, you do. And then they said to me, will you be there with us? And I said, I will. And then we met separately first to prepare them and then the meeting took place in my office. The moment that driver who had killed this woman's husband looked her in the eye and said, I was wrong. It changed everything in the room. By the end of that conversation, all of us, myself included, were weeping and holding each other. And the victim's wife was holding the perpetrator's face in the palms of her hands and looked her in the eyes and kissed her and said, God bless you. All because of the right few simple words. So in the book, you refer more than once, you, you talk about your couch of tears. That's yes. exactly where that moment happened that you just described. And in my work, uh, I stress in this idea of constructive candor, of, of, of having the right kind of difficult conversation, I talk about the preparation phase. And I say that it happens before you enter the room. Uh, as, as people prepare to sit on your couch of tears and you know they're sitting out here in the reception area, how do you prepare for that moment? Well, in some ways, much less than you think. Yeah. <laughs> because sometimes I'm finishing, literally finishing a meeting 10 seconds before, you know, and it could be a meeting that is completely disparate from having an, an intake meeting with a family of mourners, you know, to prepare mm -hmm. for a funeral. It could be a marketing meeting, it could be a budget meeting. It could be about an employee we need to fire, I don't know. So, you know, I sometimes don't have any time to prepare. I just open the door and I'm myself. And I wanna make, a, I think, an important point about that. I think what people need and want, while of course being appropriate with them and tuning into their frequency, they really don't need me to be anything other than who I am with them. If they're a family with which I have a long and loving and humorous relationship, I might walk out, give them a big hug and say, and make some kind of joke. 
because that's who we are together. If it's a family I don't know at all, I may come out and say, I'm so sorry you have to go through this. I, I wish I knew more, but I promise you by the end of this conversation, I'm going to know a lot and we're going to be okay together. You know, I, but I try to be who I am. A friend of mine, a rabbi in Boston, whose son, adult son committed suicide, said to me once that he found it uh, unpleasant when people approached him, not only during but after the, the, the mourning process, the first few days, with these long drawn faces, you know, he just wanted them to be who they were with him. He, he didn't need them to be sad. Obviously to be appropriate, yes. Or people would say things to him like, I can't imagine what you're going through. And that offended him because every parent imagines their child dying. What do you mean you can't imagine it? You can't imagine it. You don't have to pretend. You don't have to say that. So I, I, I think the more I'm myself, the, the more people are helped by mm. the process I'm going to put in place to structure their grief and their chaos and by the wisdom of an ancient tradition that I'm going to bring with me to help structure and, and, and uh, honor mm. their grief and their love and their pain. Uh, but I, I'm not a um, dour, you know, depressed guy when I walk into a hospital room or when I, walk, or I go out to greet a grieving family. I am who I am. You know, you've been through this with me, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. I'm sure I gave you a hug and we cracked a couple of jokes mm -hmm. and then sat down and started talking. And I think that's sort of people need to know that this is not the end of the world. This is sad, terribly sad. But life will reassert itself. We are going to get through this and you can get on my back and I'm going to carry you. Mm -hmm. um, so that, you know. Now, I think the, the, the question you didn't ask but is implied is, well, how do you, Steve, handle carrying so many other people's problems and grief? Often total strangers you don't even know. And yet you, you have to show up like their closest relative for a while. How do you gladly shoulder that? And then what do you do afterwards, right? How do you uh, get out from underneath the cloud I shoulder it because I have a very old-fashioned idea about work in general, which is like you, you put on the steel-toed boots, you put on the gloves, and you dig. Like, do your job. Work hard. Do your job. This is your job. Go help these people. Whether you feel like it or not, whether you know them or not, you treat them the way you'd want to be treated. And, you know, I grew up, as you read in the book, it's pretty clear my father violated every child labor law in the books by the time I was five. You know, I grew up at five years old scrubbing floors and toilets. Mm -hmm. Now, being a rabbi isn't scrubbing floors and toilets, but I still have that same attitude about work. What, what, what was his 
you've told me this before. What was his Yiddish term about get behind and push? Oh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so my dad, uh, for whom Yiddish was his first language, uh, when I was talking with him many years ago, he now has Alzheimer's and he's deep into it. So I, we, I haven't had a real conversation with my dad in probably a decade. But before that, one of the last, if not the last, real conversation I had with my father, I was visiting them in their condo in Palm Springs, and my dad always asked four questions, you know, one of which was, how's, how's work? Um, the others were, um, how's your love life? How's your car? And do you have enough money? <laughs> we called them the four questions. We got them. <laughs> All five of us got them every Sunday. So how's work? And I started talking to him about the burdens of fundraising and how hard it was. And he looked at me and said, now you have to remember, everything my father ever said in Yiddish was a double entendre and dirty. Yeah. Everything. Because I remember. Right? right? So my dad looked at me and says, Asma stuptis gaitis. I said, what does that mean? He says, if you push, it goes. Just keep pushing. And I'm my father's son. I just, you know, keep mm -hmm. pushing. So how do I prepare? You know, I just... Mm -hmm. I do it. There was, there was one summer when I was a young associate rabbi and the senior rabbi disappeared for three months to Israel, left me because we were in the middle of hiring a third, left me alone with, you know, a 2,500 family congregation. I had 14 funerals in 17 days. Mm. You know how I did it? I just pushed, right? I just did it. I treated every one of them the way I would want to have been treated. I worked super hard. I was younger. It was a little easier then. Um, so I'm very old-fashioned about work, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, that's part of it. The, the decompression part. I have this ritual where every time I leave the cemetery, I call my wife. And I really, you know, there are many difficult things about dealing with death, but one of the upsides is it really encourages you to appreciate life. And one of the ways I reframe what I've just been through in a positive way is I, I call Betsy. And she knows why I'm calling, and I know why I'm calling. I'm calling because I feel really fortunate that we have each other and that we're alive. Um, and that's a way, I can't say of decompressing, but it is a way of reframing the death experience because death ultimately ought to change your life. I'm talking about this on Yom Kippur this year. Mm -hmm. How does the contemplation of our deaths, how can it help us change our lives? Because uh, it starts with me buying cemetery property which I did this past June. And it opens with me a scene wherein I am literally standing on my own grave and what that feels like. Mm. And the sermon unfolds in a way that encourages every person listening to consider what it means to stand upon one's own grave mm. in the literal and metaphorical sense. Well, as I said at the top, I've known you for a long time. Uh, I have benefited in multiple, multiple ways from that relationship. 
today is one more example of that. And the good part about that is we get to share this conversation. We get to share the encouragement to buy the book, uh, all of that sort of stuff. But moments like this um, remind me how fortunate that I am, my family is, uh, all these congregants are. Uh, and today will be uh, living proof of that. So thank you for thank you for Drew. sitting here. And um, this is Tell Me What to Say. This is Drew Kugler with Steve Peter. Thanks.